Welcome to Broadband Conversations. My name is Jessica Rosenworcel, and I'm a member of the Federal Communications Commission. And this is the podcast where I get to talk to leading women from across the technology, innovation, and media industries. You get to hear what they're working on, what's on their minds, and what they think is the next big thing. And my guest today is Julie Samuels, the Executive Director of Tech NYC. She's had a long career throughout the tech world. She's run a nationwide nonprofit dedicated to entrepreneurship. She's litigated intellectual property cases. She's testified before Congress, and she's even spent time working at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications. And we're going to talk about all of that on this podcast, but let me set the stage a little bit because Julie and I actually recorded a conversation early in March, right before most of us were told to stay home as this virus had begun to spread to our communities. And of course, one of those hardest hit communities is New York City, and that's where Julie lives and works. So once we figured out how to record remotely, I wanted to redo this conversation because we're hearing so much about this pandemic and its devastating impact on New York. And I thought it would be really, really important to hear from a woman on the ground working and seeing firsthand how her community is coping and how technology could maybe help in this crisis, especially as we're using so much more connectivity for telework, telehealth, teleeducation, for really everything we're doing during this time. So we're gonna have a lot of ground to cover, but first I really wanna thank Julie for rejoining me and for being here today. I hope you're staying well and I hope you're healthy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad uh, we're gonna get the chance to revisit this um, because it is very much a new world since we last spoke. Right, okay, but let's roll back and let's start with your story and tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Yes, so um, Tech NYC, the organization I run is also an organization which I founded about actually four years ago last week. Um, and, you know, Tech NYC is, a, is an organization that represents about 800 tech companies and investors working on public policy issues, mostly at the state and local level here in New York. Um, but before I did this, as you said, I've been working in tech policy um, for a very long time. Um, and thinking, I've spent my career really thinking about how technology is, impacts uh, the way government works, the way society works, the way we all kind of interact with each other. And uh, as, as you mentioned, a lot of this started a very long time ago. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit in the 90s um, at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, which uh, for those of you who don't know, that's where Mark Andreessen invented Mosaic, which was the first graphical web browser, which became Netscape. Mark was there before my time, but not much. But the reason I bring that up um, is because careers are really funny things and how you end up doing something can in so many ways be luck or happenstance. And in many ways, that was my case. I was a print journalism major. I'm not sure that's still a thing anymore um, <laughs> at the University of Illinois. And I thought I wanted to be an economics reporter. And if anyone knows me, they know that that is kind of funny, <laughs> borderline really funny. Um, I don't, economics, finance, not my strong suit at all. Um, and I had an amazing professor and he said to me, there's this internship at NCSA writing about technology, explaining technology is complicated. So is explaining economics. So why don't you see if you can get this internship and learn about explaining technology um, and, 
and maybe that'll prepare you for being an economics reporter. And I never really looked back. That and like with other people, I had an, another amazing professor who taught a First Amendment course, but for undergrads, not law school level, uh, because again, I was a journalism major. And that class, I took it in 1998, which is you know right right at the time that some really important litigation was happening, um, ACLU litigation, and and that that really kind of turned me on to to all these issues. So I was always thinking about how the internet would impact the news, um, and that kind of took off from there. Anyway, I moved to Washington D.C. I worked for the National Journal. I moved to New York, worked for a nonprofit called Media Coalition, and then I went to law school. Um, and then I practiced for a while, and then I went and I moved to San Francisco, where I went to work at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which was the dream job. It was the why I went to law school job. It was amazing. I was an attorney there, and my title was uh, the Mark Cuban Chair to Eliminate Stupid Patents. So I worked <laughs> a lot on intellectual property issues. Patent reform, copyright stuff. Um, I have a barking dog in the background, which I think is part of working from home. Oh my God, that's life now. Make no yeah. apologies. <laughs> um, anyway, you know, he, I left EFF to run Engine. Um, but one thing I'd also point out there is I started doing more and more policy work when I was at EFF. And my background up until that point had really been in litigation. Um, and I found out I really liked policy work. And I, I didn't have any training to do that work the time, but it came much more naturally to me than, than being a litigator. So that was um, that was kind of how my career ended up where it was. And then I moved to New York. Um, because I love New York. And I started Tech NYC. All right. Well, listen, you just mentioned it's four years. So happy birthday. That's a, that's yes, a big you. milestone. So how about you share a little bit about what you do in your current role? Because, you know, when most people think of technology, they probably think of California and Silicon Valley, where you used to do some of your work. But in New yep. York City, at least until recent days, we've been able to count like over 9,000 tech startups. So it's a city that is also producing a lot of technology. And um, so tell me a little bit more about your organization and what it does. Yeah, so I, I'll take this in two parts and I'll talk specifically about what we do, but also why I'm so bullish on New York. Uh, and the tech scene here. What we do is, you know, listen, at the end of the day, Tech NYC is a trade association. We have member companies. We engage with elected officials um, and other kind of government stakeholders, mostly at the city and state level. And we do that to ensure that New York City um, and New York State are working to grow tech companies here, to grow the tech ecosystem. But we also bring those tech companies and their leaders to bear to support New York City and New York State. So two sides of the policy coin, you know, what, what will make our companies uh, more productive here and what can our companies do to support New York? Um, and we do that a host of different ways, but you know, it's traditional policy and political work. It's really fun, really dynamic. As with most people who work in this space, it's constantly changing. You know, when I think about kind of the development of internet sector more broadly. Uh, you know, you had for the past, you know, better part of two decades, you've had this explosive growth from the West Coast. Uh, and those companies are largely software companies. Uh, they're companies that essentially make the technology available to general users, you know, the application layer of the internet. Uh, sure. How people like 
me, even you know, who works in technology, actually access the internet. Um, I don't think those companies could have ever gotten started on the East Coast. I think they would have probably been crushed by competition, by regulators, by government, you know, you name it. But I think that these companies that started on the West Coast, um, you know, frankly, I think a lot of people on the East Coast just weren't taking them seriously for a long time. Uh, didn't really know what was going on. They had silly names. Didn't really seem real. I mean, I know that you you remember this, Commissioner. I do. I do. But you also <laughs> mentioned your silly name when you worked at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yes. So you're silly among those amazing. who had titles I'm among like them. that. Yes. <laughs> silly names are great. They're great. Um, but you know what? What I think happened, of course, is those companies all of a sudden got so big they couldn't be ignored anymore. Um, but you know, the next generation of big tech companies won't have that advantage of being able to stay under the radar long enough to get so big that, that you can't be ignored. And so that means you need a different skill set to grow. You need to work with other stakeholders. You need to know how to interface with government earlier on in the process. You know how to, you need to know how to partner with potential competitors or existing industry. And that is so New York, you know, a lot of East Coast cities, but so New York. Um, you know, when you live here, really different right now in the time of COVID, but, but when you live here, you cannot be in a bubble. You can't be in a vacuum. There are people everywhere. People, um, God, it feels sad to say some of these things. They were on public transit all the time in normal circumstances. Um, you know, what, when I moved here from San Francisco, one of the things that was most notable to me once my oldest son started going to school was when he got to preschool, um, at least his first year, my husband and I were the only parents who worked in tech in his class. And that would not have been the case in the Valley. And actually it's not the case anymore either, but, but you know, um, you were just surrounded by people thinking differently about different types of problems all the time. And I think that's a crucial ingredient for the next generation of large tech companies. And, and one last point about this, the, I think the next generation of large tech companies are going to exist in these tougher to innovate in markets. Um, and I think those markets are tougher to innovate in, not because of the technological problems, but because of the regulatory regimes and the other entrenched and incumbent industries. Um, and I think that, that you'll increasingly see that growth happening where those industries are already located, where there's expertise, and that's here. So I feel even in the time of coronavirus too, you know, incredibly bullish on, on what's going to happen here in New York. That's a, that's a really neat statement of why you exist and why you think New York is a place now for technology to grow. But of course, we're in the middle of this yeah. um, really challenging historic moment and the epicenter of this crisis, at least in early days, has been New York City. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about how the technology sector's been impacted by coronavirus? Yeah. So. The first thing I would say is that the technology sector um, has not been hit as hard as many other sectors. I think it's important that we kind of start from that baseline. Um, you know, there are industries that are absolutely reeling right now, and technology, generally speaking, is not. But, um, you know, something we've seen that has long been a trend in tech, of course, is that the word tech is increasingly becoming meaningless. Um, you know, it's and everything. Right. It's everything, everything. Right. right. Every company is a tech company, which sounds trite, but is true. So we have companies in our network who are doing 
great right now. And we have companies in our network who are not at all doing great right now. Uh, if, if you're a tech company in the travel space or in the retail space, this pandemic has not been good for your bottom line. You know, I, I say that, uh, I, I say that kind of lightly. I don't mean it lightly at all. Um, but you know, you've got companies who are building software that help education or connectivity and, and they're doing great. Um, so it's hard to speak with a broad brush about what's happening. Uh, but there are some trends that are notable. And one of them is that it is, it has been um, much easier for tech companies to transition to working from home because you know they, these companies are already uh, used to using the tools necessary um, and they all had everything in the cloud already. They were able to take their laptops home and, and pretty much seamlessly, uh, not entirely, but pretty much get to work. That is not true in other industries obviously industries that require a presence that's different, but even in some of the financial sectors, uh, legal fields, you know, these businesses have had a much harder time transitioning to work from home. So that's, that's the first thing. And, and by the way, as we start thinking about going back to the office, which we're doing a lot of thinking about now, I think you'll see um, tech companies stay home longer because it's easy enough for them to do it. And to the extent you want to keep people away from other people, uh, tech companies might be able to take one for the team there, if you will, and stay home a bit longer. So we've seen that. Uh, the other thing that we see all the time here, which is just so confidence inspiring, is um, a real desire to help. Oh yeah, let's definitely talk about that. I mean, yeah. do you have some examples? Because yeah. it's, it's apparent that you know technology is helping us stay connected at home, but also, the companies that you work with, are they coming up with ideas to help combat yeah. this virus, make life easier for us to live during these times? I feel like there's so much opportunity there and um, those are good things. They deserve getting talked about. Yeah, there's so much happening here that's amazing. I mean, there's stuff that is more on the front line, actual needs by government or other kind of civic entities where they need help from tech companies and tech companies and technologists have stepped up. A uh, great example is New York State launched uh, what they call the SWAT team, where they brought in teams of technologists, ideally from a single employer, to combat specific technical problems in the field that the state was dealing with related to the virus. Um, they launched the first day with, and within, I'm going to get the numbers slightly off, but I'll give you the general, the general gist is right, within about the first four to six weeks, they had over 6,500 applications, which represented over 7,200 individual engineers to help. The state hasn't even been able to respond to the interest uh, from technologists who want to help. It's, it's amazing. So um, are one what, of the can I just ask, are they, what are they, are they taking like state systems and figuring out how to make them easier for people to engage with, or they're coming up with new yep, systems? Yep, you've seen some state? of that. I think there's some of both. Um, not all the projects are public, so I'm, kind of unable to answer, but some things are directly related to the virus. Some things are related to the kind of ramifications of the virus, like for instance, unemployment. We've also seen this at the city level. There's a great example here. The Times did a big piece on this um, that I'd recommend folks take a look at um, where we had some companies here in the Navy Yard in Brooklyn at this amazing space called New Lab where they do all kinds of advanced manufacturing, high-tech manufacturing. It's a very cool spot. And they were essentially able to start building ventilators. 
Um, and they were able to do that quickly and cheaply, and they brought in engineers who were able to help uh, get these ventilators functioning. Uh, they were, as I understand, they're kind of different levels of ventilators, and these were kind of entry-level ventilators, I guess. That's probably not the term the medical establishment uses, um, but <laughs> it, you know, it's an amazing example of the private sector and the public sector coming together to build these things that, of course, the city wouldn't know how to do without the help from the engineers here That's in unique. New York. Now, so you're talking about health help from these companies during this crisis, but I also feel like it's worth looking to the other side. Like when we come out from this moment, what do you think is going to change with the kind of technologies and companies yeah. you're seeing? Like, will there be new learning tools or new ways to connect remotely for healthcare or work? Because I feel like this crisis is accelerating what we already see in our economy. So what yes, is it, I could what not it agree like more. on the other side? So I think you got to take the sectors one by one. I think with healthcare, telehealth is going to explode. And you know, that's something that should have happened a long time ago. Here in New York State, the governor just um, renewed an order that he had issued since the virus that allowed doctors to practice across state lines. You know, these what was standing in the way of telehealth becoming widely adopted before was not again the technology, but in many instances, um, either the regulations or when something that you know more about than anyone I know, the connectivity challenges. Sure, um, but the, the state licensing, the state-by-state state licensing regimes are not for an era of telehealth. And figuring right. out those licensing regimes in conjunction with reimbursement could actually yes. make this really go far in the future. And so I hope that we use this moment to, we like I said, we have these executive orders here. They're not indefinite. They're, they're um, as I understand, they're related to the state of emergency. But you know, once people get used to using telehealth, um, I think you will start to see the, that regulatory structure. Um, you know, it, it's it's slower to catch up, but it, it will get there. I think on the education front, you'll see uh, you'll see a lot of new interesting tools. But I also would say, I think in the education space, you are, and I think this is a good thing, seeing some of the limits of technology as well. Um, and I think that's really important. And I think that those are important and meaningful conversations that I hope we have more of. Um, because as anyone who is dealing with children who are <laughs> trying to be homeschooled right now can see, um, you know, it's not a substitute for in-person learning. Uh, and, and so, and I don't think technology alone ever will be a substitute for in-person learning. But there are a lot of big questions our society has, you know, if you've got a family with uh, where all the adults work and the kids need help with their school, there's no one else around. It's, technology can't always fix that. Um, so I think that we'll have some really good, interesting, hard conversations. And, and I hear, especially in the schooling piece, is where connectivity is obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, New York City so, has more than a million students. Mm -hmm. public biggest schools. school system in the country. And, right, it's the biggest school system in the country, and they're making an amazing effort to try to reach out and connect all those students. But as I always talk about with the homework gap, you have kids that don't have reliable internet access right. at home. And one of the challenges is figuring out how to get every child online. And I, I hope we use this crisis to address that because you don't have a fair shot at education today without having internet access at home. And I know that it's an issue, not just with school-aged kids, but with uh, 
um, people who want jobs and want opportunities yeah. in technology in New York. And I know you've done some work as an organization on that. And I think all of those lessons applied before this crisis, they're going to apply afterwards. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that is that that is crucial. Um, and we've spent a lot of time as an organization thinking about what workforce development looks like in the technology space, as well as thinking about what public education looks like in the broader technology space to prepare New Yorkers for these jobs. Um, because, you know, what I was saying earlier about how I'm so bullish on New York um, and remain bullish on New York, uh, despite everything that's going on, um, it, it's only going to work if New Yorkers, you know, the, the people who grow up in New York and live in New York can access the jobs that these companies are building. Um, and that is unfortunately not an easy task. Some of the things we have here that are working well, one is a program called CS for All, the number four, um, ALL obviously. It's an $80 million uh, public-private partnership with the city to over the course of a decade, bring computer science education into every New York City public school. We're about halfway through that 10 years and so far, um, you know, hit or exceeded all the metrics. It's really great. Um, and our numbers here, uh, the numbers that show who take the who takes the APCS exam are amazing. Um, I think I think I'm two cycles old with my figures, but we have something like 40% women taking the APCS exams. Wow. Um, our minority numbers are still not where they should be, but they are significantly higher than any other state in the country. And it's because we're giving kids access to computer science education from a young age. And the ones who have interest and aptitude hopefully will follow it. Um, in addition to that, we have a really robust, incredibly robust network of hundreds and hundreds of uh, pro nonprofit, mostly nonprofit programs here in the city supporting New Yorkers, both through high school and then, you know, once, once people are out of school and maybe looking to make a career change or, you know, get into tech, we put out a report with a map that showed these programs all over the city um, and showed that it was overall, I think, an optimistic picture that showed so much had been done, but it also showed that there's great disparity uh, around the geography, you know, wh where these are. They, they need to be better um, kind of spread out across the boroughs. This is all at uh, techskills.nyc. It's really great. It's, it's, we're really proud of that work. I actually think one good thing that might come out of the virus is um, that one of the problems we have here that I don't think is unique to New York, but it's that the tech uh, sector, the companies, and a lot of these workforce development programs have really been geographically um, limited in where they are, uh, mostly in parts of Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn. But once you start getting farther out in Brooklyn or into Queens and the Bronx, there just isn't as much opportunity. I think that will change because I think for a long time, people are not gonna want to take crowded subway trains. And, and I'm cautiously optimistic that this moment might mean you'll see more satellite offices in the boroughs, um, more people living closer to where they work. So maybe we'll be spreading the work um, in a more equitable sense around New York. So I think that might be um, a, a kind of upside of some of this. That's such an interesting point. And it might not only be New York City, it might be nationally too, as yeah. we recalibrate that kind of balance between work and home and where do you go to an office. Um, but it's amazing to see 
what you put in place in New York to be able to assist with diversifying that pipeline for talent. And um, I like that you're hopeful about it. Yeah, I feel, um, and, and, and you know, I think the thing that's really come out during a, a lot of the conversations I've been having, both with government and with our companies during this crisis, is that there is a real culture, as you know, in technology of um, optimism, of problem solving, of the desire to fix things. Um, you know, listen, sometimes that extreme desire to quote, fix things has, I think, gotten in the way. But right now, it's amazing. And when I talk to my companies, and you know, we call and we say, hey, listen, the governor's office called, the mayor's office called, they want to know what you need um, to come out of this on the other side. The first thing they always say is, we just want to help. And in fact, one of our challenges has been figuring out where the resources are to make that help um, really productive and effective um, because we've been kind of in an emergency state in New York. So it's been putting out fires, but things feel so much better now. Our leadership has done a really great job. I think, you know, our citizens have done a really great job of social distancing and and our curve is flattening, as they say. So I'm optimistic that now will be a time for big strategic thinking. Um, both the mayor and the governor have launched a bunch of task forces and, and kind of big thinkers to think about what, what this all looks like going forward. And um, I think in many ways, New York is the model here. It's both the model for what happens when the numbers, when the COVID numbers are really bad um, and how to get out of that. And also I think it will be the model for recovery. No, here, here. I agree with everything you just said. I also agree with the optimism because I think, um, I think we're all going to have to develop uh, uh, a level of hopefulness about the future to figure out what we can learn from this experience and how we can build better. And I love that your organization is doing that in New York. And I love that you're hopeful about its recovery because uh, uh, that feels uh, that feels good right now. Yeah, so, well, I honestly don't know how else to be. <laughs> uh, no, it's the right way to be. Unequivocally, it's the right way to be. I think that's how you get things done. Um, and I think in this crisis, we need more people who are going to be optimistic about what we can build in the future, because that's how we're going to get to the other side. And I should say, we're going to work with you. Like, we need to use this moment to get Americans online, you know. The everyone ones. connected, yes, everyone digitally skilled, because if you want some semblance of modern life right now, it's going to take yep. that up. You know, if we went into this crisis thinking, oh, an internet connection was a uh, nice to have. It's needed yes. right now. 100%. And that's true for every household. And uh, we've got to start developing national policy to treat it that way and local and state policy as you work I on those. I could not agree more. And, you know, one other thing I'd say about that, that I would even broaden that in some ways beyond connectivity. And when you think about what's been happening with tech and, and surely in the kind of political landscape too, I think part of what happened here is, is the technologists who built the tools we all use did such a good job that we all came to take them for granted. Um, and, you know, I, I think this moment reminds us all just how, at least it reminds me how amazing it is for those of us who have access to connectivity and have access to the machines you need to get online. Um, this would look like a much different crisis if we didn't have that. Oh my and gosh, absolutely. Can you imagine? 
no, no. Right. You know, it's, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I always close out these conversations by asking something that's super relevant to that point. And um, one of those questions is, what's the first thing you remember doing on the internet or online? Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I actually thought about this the last time we had this conversation. And now I'm not sure I remember, but I remember when we got our first AOL account. And I remember um, so well, you know, being in high school and where the computer was in my parents' house and being on, you know, AIM, uh, being on instant messenger with my friends. And as my older friends went to college, um, it was such a, it was just so, so, amazing to be able to connect like that. And one other little anecdote about that is I remember the first person who called to tell me about something called Alta Vista, where I could search <laughs> the internet that wasn't just AOL. Right. I remember it was like as if someone turned on a switch in my brain and I was like, oh, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we're online now doing this, but I'm going to say roll back a little bit further and yeah. say, what's the last thing you did on the internet before we gathered here? Oh, well, I mean, now we do everything on the internet. Everything. <laughs> I do everything on the internet. I mean, this morning, we're recording this late morning. I've already had one Zoom meeting. Um, I've already responded to or read a lot of more emails than I, you know, could probably count. Um, but, but I think, you know, to the, 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 thing about that question in this moment is that it's everything right now. I, that's, that is the most honest answer there is. So I, say I look forward to a time when some, when a little bit less of my life is, is on the internet, even as someone who right. loves being online. Um, I think we all look forward to. I know it's almost better posted right now. Like what's the last thing you did that didn't involve yes. activity? <laughs> I mean, that's the world we live in right now. That's I'm, I'm just thinking. Yeah. I know. Okay. So, so now think about the world a few years hence and what do you want the future of digital life to look like? Well, I think increasingly the distinction between um, digital and analog will become blurred. Um, it already is. I mean, I think since, since, you know, since the iPhone, that distinction is increasingly blurred. For instance, when you just asked that last question, I was kind of running through my morning in my brain. Um, when I was out walking the dog this morning, I was listening to an audio book that I had downloaded. Um, was that online? I had downloaded it. So technically I wasn't online, but you know, I don't even know how to answer that question. So right, I because hope that, it, they're fusing, right. right? The idea that there's right. this isolated digital world and analog world. And this yeah. crisis is actually um, speeding up that transition. Yes. Really yeah. interesting, right? I mean, there yes. are, yeah, it's really interesting. I think that, um, but, but to answer your question, the thing I'm hopeful that comes out of this and as we get to the, truly get to the other side of it and as we think about the digital world is I hope that, um, as I said earlier with regard to education, is I hope we can use the technology in the best ways for the things it really can unleash. But I hope we also can realize where there are limitations and um, as a society, uh, find those moments to be together as humans, because if this crisis has highlighted anything for me, and I think everyone else, it's that um, there's a real need for IRL, if you will. Absolutely. All right. 
So before we go, where can folks follow you and keep up to date with what you're doing? Ah, thank you. Thank you for asking. <laughs> TechNYC is at TechNYC.org. We're also on Twitter at TechNYC. I'm Julie P. Samuels on Twitter. Um, you can find me on all the usual platforms. I'm pretty much always Julie P. Samuels. Um, and on Instagram, it's mostly dog content, so you probably want to stay away. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's what you want to yeah. see. That Maybe that's what these times call for. Yes. Um, all right. Thank you, Julie. This wraps thank up. Thank you so much. And Thanks. This wraps up another episode of Broadband Conversations. Thank you, Julie, for being here. Thanks to everyone for listening. Take care.